Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. We are recording via Zoom today with an interstate guest, but we also have Peter and Sue jumping in via Zoom, properly socially distanced. Peter, what, what's the uh, Zoom background you're working with here today that I can see? Uh, my Zoom background is Siena in Italy. Yep. Uh, it's part of my... Um, grieving process for the holiday I'm not going to get in October. Yeah. I keep beating myself up by showing myself pictures I've taken in Italy. <laughs> and Sue, we're coming to you in the office with the, the bookshelf yeah. behind you. Have you, uh, I noticed that I had this with a bookshelf early on in the Zoom meetings that I had to remove some of the maybe less prestigious books from behind me. Yeah. I needed to make sure I had the I most impressive ones. I haven't zoomed in, so I'm hoping it's far enough away that I'm free <laughs> of judgment. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, we're very excited to have a guest joining us today who is something of a national treasure. I think it would be fair to say social researcher and author Hugh Mackay uh, zooming into the On The Way podcast. Hugh, thank you for, for making time and for joining us. Great pleasure. Lovely to be here. Thank you, Dom. So where are you based in the country right now in the middle of this pandemic, Hugh? Uh, Canberra, which has been home for the last three years, uh, and that's that's in my background. Uh, well, it's in my foreground in my life now, but it's in my background on the Zoom. Lovely. Okay. Well, the, the reason we're, we're joining you for this conversation today, Hugh, is because you have two new books that have uh, recently come out. There's a novel called The Question of Love and a non-fiction work, The Inner Self, um, and they have similar thematic ideas. We're going to spend most of today discussing the non-fiction work, The Inner Self, um, but we're going to also draw on some of the themes of the novel as well. It's uh, it's fascinating work. We've all had the chance to to look through it in the the recent weeks. Um, the the inner self. Can you just talk us through? Because obviously the, the book, to put it in a nutshell, I suppose, is about connecting with and exploring and knowing the true self, the true essence of who we are, not the labels and identities and masks that that most of society has most of the time. Can you just, I guess, give us an insight into what led you into exploring this sort of work in these areas? Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Dom. And in fact, you just captured my motivation in that brief summary because I've spent all my working life really as a, as a social psychologist, as a researcher, uh, looking at how society functions, how people respond to social change, how people interact with each other, all concerned very much with externals um, and with I mean, identity is the fashionable word at the moment. In fact, it's become too fashionable and I think dangerously. Um, but where most of us are, particularly in the first half of our lives, primarily concerned with our identity. And identity is an interesting word. Uh, I wanted, in this book, I wanted to draw a very sharp distinction between identity and self because identity is the exterior. It's like the, it's like the shell, the outer shell. Uh, and it's all about, the very word captures it, it's all about how different we are. It's how we identify ourselves and discriminate between Dom and Sue and Peter and Hugh. And all these differences are of course fascinating. Uh, one of the most interesting things parents discover is that they can have two or three or four kids and they can be so different from each other. And that's all about identity. It's all about um, externalities. 
physical appearance uh, as we as we move through adolescence into adulthood our identity consists of things like a person we might choose as a partner or whether or not we decide to have children what kind of job we might do what sort of style we might adopt but for most of us there comes a time and, and it often seems to come around about the midlife in fact the the classic textbook midlife crisis is often i think about this very thing there comes a point where we realize that all that stuff about identity all that stuff about the differences between us is not the full story that there is an inner deeper sense of self which is often at variance with this outer identity and as we as we mature when there is the sense of a gap between who i really am deep within me and how i appear to other people that gap creates a lot of tension uh, people often feeling a sense of restlessness or anxiety or even despair without being able to identify where it came from but this is where it classically comes from so this is a very long answer to your question Dawn, but can i just make one other point to 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 absolutely uh explain what i see as the difference between the outer self and the inner self so the outer self is all about difference the inner self when we go deeply inside ourselves of course there are some things about us um, which are unique to us but when we get right down to the absolute essence of who i am who you are what we discover is a bit of a paradox what we discover is that it's actually nothing to do with our uniqueness it's all to do with our common humanity it's all to do with what it's like to belong to a species in this case the human species which is by its very nature a social species that is to say we're hopeless in isolation we need each other we need families neighborhoods congregations choirs book clubs workplaces footy teams uh, that that's our natural situation to be in a group or a community a collection of people because that's how social species don't just survive but thrive it's why for example in our criminal justice system the worst possible punishment we can inflict on anyone in australia is solitary confinement because that is the worst punishment you can inflict on a member of a social species so this is this is the absolute essence of what the book is about that when you go deep you discover it's all about connection it's all about our common humanity as opposed to the shallow more exterior appearance of difference it's really well put there and I, it ties in with an idea we've sort of discussed on the podcast before there's two themes that have come through this podcast regularly one is the lie of the individual myth i suppose and the other is uh, ties in with the baptismal call that peter talks about to your unique self who you are you know in this universe i just might ask you peter can you discuss a little bit because when when we talk about in christianity i know this theme comes through a lot that we're all unique everyone is made unique 
but um, but but not in the the way that maybe culture views that in terms of an individual project, an individual self. You are unique, and you are out there to go and conquer and achieve the personal project. Can you just talk about what the difference between maybe what we mean by this sort of baptismal call to your unique self, but not disconnected or removed from others? Yeah, I think I think what we soon discover, and it, it starts with the baptismal liturgy when we realise that to be my true and best self, I have to be in deep and meaningful relationships with others. And those other relationships will shape me. Sometimes they will deform me because we get formed and deformed by other people. Um, But in the end, I will be the product of my unique self in relationship with others. And it's... It's the thing I am constantly struck uh, by in funerals is when people are giving eulogies, one very quickly realises as a whole, you've got several hundred people gathered together who would not be who they are today if they hadn't had that wonderful relationship they'd had with the person who is deceased. And one of the things that dawns for people during a funeral is that they are still in relationship with the deceased, that they are so deeply formed and connected through life that death actually cannot separate them. Mm. So they carry the other person corporately. We re, you know, at a funeral, we actually remember, we put, in a sense, we put the deceased person back together because they are amongst mm. us and with us. And we get that same beautiful moment in the Eucharist. Uh, In fact, as I was presiding this morning, I had one of those really magic moments when I realised that as as the broken bread was being distributed, we were all equal. And yet we were, but our equality didn't cause our difference to evaporate. It was a beautiful individuality, but such a deep connection through sharing Eucharist, all standing, you know, literally, you know, quite figuratively in this case because of COVID, but, you know, standing together, um, being formed by a common story mm. and being transformed and being set free to be our true selves while having that experience in community and only having that experience through community. Mm. Mm. I remember that it's a paradox. You sort of discover your true self when you're in community with other people. It's Mm. and and that is that's what you touched on, Hugh, saying the paradox at the heart of this book is that we look inside to find our uniqueness and instead we find our common humanity. And I know that um, you know, particularly in Western culture, uh, my memories of growing up are probably not too dissimilar. To, to yours of, you know, you, you're very quickly put into the subjects you're good at and then you you find your unique self in the hobbies you have and there's all these identity markers. What band you're into, did you get married young or old or not at all? All, all these sort of identity markers that, that define you as a unique person. And then, as you said, you reach a certain stage in life, many people do, where they realise that those unique markers are something of a of a Mithra construction and there's something bigger, deeper going on beneath it all. But I'm just curious because in the book you do use the example of the British actress Emma Thompson and her story of, of how she reached her 60th birthday, I think it was, and, and she started to realise that the who am I question after a life of success and, and identity markers, that who who is really looking out through these eyes, who really is inside here, um, kind of captivated her. 
Did you have a, a clear memory of when that question and, and this area really captivated you from a, I guess, a, a really personal point of view? Um, yes. Uh, and I think too late in life. I wish that I'd had the classic midlife. I think I did have a bit of a midlife crisis, but I didn't get what it was really about. <laughs> uh, it was associated with the breakdown of a marriage and, and a remarriage subsequently. Uh, and I suppose I thought that's what it was about. But, of course, that wasn't what it was really about. Uh, I think I wasn't uh, really... I, I was a bit like Emma Thompson. I, I was into my 60s before I really began to, to get this idea of, and, and Peter expressed it beautifully in describing his magic moment this morning, uh, this tension between my self, myself as an independent, unique being, which I am, and my utter interdependence on others, which is equally true of me. Mm. But, but I think that the deeper layer of this conversation is that when we're going into, and this, this, this is what I think came to me too late, but when we're going deeply into ourselves and discovering that, it's, that, that our essence is about our commonness, about our, about our connectedness, uh, the, the fact that we are part of the greater whole called humanity, the, the essence of that, it's not just a kind of an intellectual, oh, isn't that interesting, we're all part of one species, it is to realise that we have a duty to that species and that duty is to be loving. That, that at the very core of the self is the capacity for compassion, kindness, respect towards others. And I think the breakthrough moment for anyone on this journey is when we realise that that's actually what we're for <laughs> that's what it is to be human and it has nothing whatever to do with affection it's how we make sense of some of uh, some of the sayings attributed to jesus uh, for example loving enemies doesn't mean you would feel some kind of emotional uh, positive uh, feeling towards enemies it means that your reserves of compassion as a human being are like a discipline that you have to exert and they are inexhaustible. And whether it's someone that you really don't like, someone you could never agree with about religion or politics or music or whatever, they're human too. And we are being truly human. We are being at our human best when we've understood that our essence is to be of course the groups the families the congregations the communities the group these things can't work unless enough of us are committed to the idea that we must promote social harmony and we can only promote social harmony by showing kindness and respect towards everyone we encounter not just people for whom we have positive emotional feelings. That's a, that, of course, positive emotional feelings are wonderful. I'm not, against, I'm not against that, but it's an absolute red herring when you're talking about the essence of what it means to be human. I actually, Hugh, you use um, the phrase somewhere in there 
of taking one another seriously, taking everyone seriously. And I, I love that as a phrase because we often talk about treating people with respect as, and we hear it so often. I think sometimes you need to hear it in a slightly different way. And if you talk about taking everyone you meet seriously, um, then I think that gives a weight to the other person and an importance and an honour to the other person. So uh, that was one of my takeaway lines from, from your work. And I think it could really, it can really be a, a tilt, a lens that, that could be very helpful. Yes. Yes. Uh, thanks, Sue. Um, I, I think that's, pro we're probably there touching on what I believe to be the greatest of all human needs, mm. the need to be taken seriously. Mm. Uh, whether you're a, a little child or an 82-year-old, uh, all of us, anywhere on the age spectrum or the socio-cultural or economic or any other spectrum, we all have at our at, at the deepest level this need to be heard, to be attended to, uh, to be acknowledged, to be recognised, to be responded to, uh, because if, if, if no one else is responding to me, then then I have this awful sense that I'm not connected, that I'm not part of the thing I'm supposed to be part of. And I think that deep need to be taken seriously is a reflection of the fact that our primary duty as humans is to love. Mm. It's it's an interesting point, I suppose, because it is all about the energy with which you approach any of these things or the angle you're looking at them from. Because if you are thinking about your own personal uniqueness and your identity markers, you can hear things like love your enemies and the human um, work to, to love each other. And you can hear that as an individual call to you that, oh, I need to work harder on my my loving, I need to be a more loving person. I, I need to be looked at and seen as more loving. It, you know, it, it becomes another individual project of how can I be better and tick more boxes and be looked on more favorably. And then maybe at the end, someone will give me a report card and say, congratulations, <laughs> you're in the top 5% of the loving people in the world when you're alive. That's a pretty good effort in you come or something along those lines. Whereas I suppose what you're speaking of here is, you know, and I, I know this is classic Christian idea of, of dying to self to find yourself, that kind of idea that, that actually when you're able to give up the individual project and this idea that, that getting that report card is ever going to be something that actually happens in this world, that is when you are then able to actually do those things. Is that, is, is that yes. kind of a paradox as you see it, Hugh? Yes. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that that uh, little journey you just went on, Dom, um, because there is a real trap in this kind of discussion, uh, and you can see it. It it, it often uh, you know there there are books being published this very year or, or that that capture this idea that we need to be kind to other people because that's good for us. What will make you happy is. Uh, if you can uh, show compassion towards other people. Now, this, this makes my flesh creep. <laughs> this, this has nothing to do with virtue. This has nothing to do with compassion. If I'm exploiting someone else's need in order to increase my happiness quotient, there's no virtue in it at all. I mean, this is this is not about me. It's not about my report card. It's not about ticking the boxes. Or, or getting uh, first-class honours uh, at the end of my life. It's simply about acknowledging that I live for others because I'm human. 
Gandhi uh, captured it in a in a, a quote that I've used in the book when he said, "The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others." Well, uh, I mean, the the most important part of that quote, of course, is finding yourself in the service of others. Mm. Uh, it's 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 about it, it is it is. A rec- I see this just as a, a quite a tough mental discipline. You know, this, this is a commitment. You, it's a commitment you make to a certain way of being in the world, which has nothing to do with being a good guy, nothing to do with the reward you get for this. You might get a reward. I mean, sometimes when you behave compassionately towards someone, particularly someone in, in obvious need, you might get a little kick out of it, but equally you might not. You might be helping someone out at an extremely inconvenient moment. You know, they might have uh, a frail elderly person might have dropped their shopping bag uh, outside the supermarket, and obviously they need help. But it's pouring with rain, and you're running late for a meeting, and you're going to help them because you're human. You're going to help them get sorted out and on their way. But you're not going to get any pleasure out of that. You're not going to get home soaked to the skin, saying, "Well." That was terrific. I'm really glad that I did that. Yes, what a nuisance. Uh, I could have done without that. But, yeah, just footnote that I'm human. So I didn't, I didn't have to think twice about whether I would pause and help. That's what a human does. And what's remarkable, and in fact sometimes makes the news, is when humans don't respond to someone who's in obvious need. It's so natural for us when we're being true to ourselves to behave compassionately mm. however it is it is a demand and i don't think that's too strong a word which is why i think when we when we honestly look inside ourselves we don't just see ah that that we are imbued with a loving spirit but that it that's who we are we also see that this is going to make demands on us. This is going to call on us to live in a certain way, which isn't always going to be easy, like the burst shopping bag in, in the rainstorm. Not easy. Um, uh, and, and greater challenges, dealing with relationships which have become tricky or difficult, or dealing with people who are experiencing mental illness. And so these, it is very demanding to be loving all the time, which is why we hide from that. That demand. It's, I, I think of the loving spirit within us as being like the light that animates us, warms us, and literally enlightens us, uh, gives us a purpose for living, etc. But like the sun, like all bright lights, it casts terrible shadows, which is why in our folklore we talk about the fine line between love and hate. Uh, why? People in loving relationships can experience dreadful possessiveness, uh, jealousy, desire for revenge. All sorts of things exist within us because we are illuminated by compassion. And that's it's like people who, in a particular setting, know what is the right thing to do, but decide not to do it. That's human. We sometimes do that. We sometimes slip into the shadows so we don't have to respond directly to the light. 
Well, speaking of the, these hiding places, Hugh, you're actually in in the book, you list the top 20 places that we tend to go to hide from our true inner self, to hide from this this call to love. Um, and, you know, and it, it is interesting when you when you actually look at the ones you've listed. I'll just rattle through, a, a, you know, them and then we'll look at a few in particular. You write that addiction, ambition, anxiety, arrogance, busyness, complacency, uncertainty, fantasy, fatalism, forgetting, guilt and shame, the pursuit of happiness, information technology, masks and labels, materialism, nostalgia, perfectionism, projection, religion and science, victimhood and work are the top 20 places or 20 of the top places that we can very easily, it's almost as if there's a big playing field here of of you know the love and the pain of what it is to be alive and to be a human and then there's 20 bunkers set up around the outside and a lot of us spend our time in those bunkers not wanting to be out on the field doing the actual work of being alive and and just looking at a bunch of those some might surprise people because i think they're, they're still very much you know there'd probably be a an acceptance in western society that addiction for example is not a healthy thing but I don't think there'd be the same acceptance in Western society that ambition is not a healthy thing. Mm. Ambition is seen as a virtue. Ambition is seen as something you should have and possess and aim for. So maybe just starting with ambition, well, where do you see that as being a, you know, a hiding place from our, our inner self? Mm. Yes, thanks, Tom. Um, and by the way, when you, when you read through the list, that reminds me to say that not all of these places are necessarily hiding places. Um, we might, for example, later talk about religion and science. Well, they are not necessarily hiding places, but they become hiding places if we use them to hide from the loving spirit within. So, mm. yes, ambition is a, is, a, is a lovely one to start with because here is a classic case of how ambition can be fueled by love or it can be fueled by ego. Uh, and so it becomes a hiding place when it's protecting us from the demand to be compassionate, kind, respectful, inclusive, tolerant towards other people and becomes a narrow focus to do with me getting what I want. Now, let, let's take a political example, not a personal example, but a theoretical. Uh, you can think of someone, one of the things that's, that's kind of regarded almost as an axiom in politics is no one ever becomes prime minister without having been driven by the lifelong ambition to become <laughs> prime minister. Now, I'm not sure that's literally true, but I've had that um, proposition put to me. Now, let's examine the ambition to be prime minister. That can be a loving ambition or it can be an ego driven. It can be all about, I want to be prime minister because that's the biggest job in the country. That if I'm Prime Minister, no one can say I didn't get to the top of the heap. I want to be Prime Minister. That's like saying I want to be, maybe Peter has this, harbours this dark ambition to become an Archbishop and Primate uh, <laughs> so he can be Primate. <laughs> in my nightmare. It's in my nightmare. <laughs> it seems deeply improbable, uh, but you can see what I'm saying. I mean, imagine being driven by that as an ambition. Yeah. So I just want that job versus the person who says, I want to eradicate poverty. Uh, I want to eliminate the gap between the genders in the workplace or in our culture, uh, or I want to be sure that there, there is no more homelessness, or I want to 
restore more of an egalitarian ethos to our society. In order to do that, I might have to become prime minister. And there might even be some reluctance about it. But there is an ambition which, to which I would give a big tick and say that is an ambition born of compassion, whereas the ambition to have the top job because I want to have the top job uh, is a hiding place from the self. That's, that's denying our humanity. It's denying the loving spirit within. I've, I've heard school teachers sometimes be criticised for their lack of ambition. One of my own teachers in primary school uh, told me long after I'd left primary school, I remained in contact with her, that people criticised her for her lack of ambition because she refused promotion. She'd been offered the, the, the opportunity to become a, a school principal in, in various locations. She, she turned all this down because, as she put it eloquently and beautifully, my ambition is for my pupils. She wanted to be a person in charge of a class devoted to teaching children life skills, flourishing skills. She wanted to nurture young minds. That sounds a bit grandiose, but that was her ambition. It had absolutely nothing to do with her status in the world or her income or whether people would say, oh, she did very well. She became the principal of a school. She would say, judge whether I did well or not by what became of my pupils. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting when you look through these hiding places that you list, things such as busyness come up as well. And in the book, you actually, you, you touch on maybe what we've been talking about here as well. You write, um, you ask the question, how often do we find ourselves happily indulging in some trivial pursuit, even though a deeper awareness is whispering to us of its futility? How often do we observe ourselves engaged in serious conversation while another part of us silently acknowledges our words to be a vain attempt to uphold a comfortable illusion that we do not really believe in? And I'm sure as I say that there'll be people who, probably everyone listening to this, can have some some moment of connecting to that, that we, we spend a lot of our lives pursuing things. And, you know, a really good way, I think, of putting it is how you have put it. We spend a lot of our lives hiding from what's really going on here and what we really feel that we're meant to be here to do. But, but it's, it's just so tempting and so easy and so habitual to, to hide. Why, why is it such a, such a habitual thing for us to, to want to fall into one of those hiding places? Well, there are, there are many answers to that. Uh, I suppose the, 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 the main one is once you find a hiding place which protects you, protects you from the demands of compassion, the demands of love on you, that can become very comfortable. And the longer you stay there, the more reluctant you'll become to come out again into the light. And this would be a particular problem, Dom, if other people praised you for what you're doing. Now, you mentioned busyness in passing a moment ago, and that's another really classic example of a hiding place um, it, it allows us not only to hide from ourselves, but to hide from each other. I mean, busyness, uh, as long as you're on that treadmill, you don't even have to ask why you're on the treadmill. You just have to keep running. Uh, busyness is the great barrier to social cohesion because busyness is a very um, preoccupying thing. But in our culture, weirdly, although the pandemic of 2020 has actually hit the pause button for many people and caused them to rethink this very point. 
but the culture had got to the stage where we had even changed the way we greet each other. Uh, instead of saying, how are you going, Dom? We would be saying, how are you going, Dom? Busy? As though this is the great virtue. You know, are you the, sw the switch has to be on or off. Are you busy or are you dead? Uh, and busyness is something that people praise. You know, don't, mm. don't disturb daddy. He's busy. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. so busy, I don't have time to scratch myself. You know, well, yeah. there's there's some pretty pretty good responses you could make to that. Like, are you really that inefficient? <laughs> Can't you get your work done more more efficiently than that? Or wh why have you allowed this to happen? But in our culture, we praise busyness. We we kind of indulge it, and so someone who's hiding from the self, and indeed from others, you know, even from a partner or from their own kids through their busyness, uh, gets rewarded for it because the boss thinks they're putting in an enormous amount of effort or their income is reflecting their busyness or they're just comfortable not having to think about who they really are or what they're becoming. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting point. I, I remember saying a few years ago to a friend that I felt like I'd gone through a whole year of conversations where every bit of small talk or introduction I had was just me and the person I was talking to, whoever it was, talking about how busy we were at the moment. Um, it was almost a competition. Who's busier? So they would say, right. well, I was working, I was working 12 hour days this week. And then I'd say, well, I was working a 14 hour day, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or it became this competition. Who's, who's juicing the most out of this life? Yet I know my own experiences, and I imagine this echoes many, is that when I look back at, at you know the busier periods of my life, I also see the periods that felt the shallowest, felt like I wasn't really going very deep um, in a particular yes. sense. Yes. Yeah. Well, I also say, though, that we, um, I think our, I have lots of conversations with people who know that they don't want to be this busy. Mm. And we've actually created structures in our society that are set up for this kind of um, relentless work um, and relentless scheduling of things. Yeah. And I think, particularly of teachers at the moment, and of course, during COVID, it's been so much worse. The amount, the workload that teachers have been carrying has been incredible. And they know they don't want to be yes. on that busy schedule. They would like to be able to get off. Um, yes. But there are just so many constraints on them finding a different path. And uh, yeah, I think we all need to look at ourselves, not just individually, but societally as well, because yeah, yeah. yes. we've created that feed that. Yes. Well, look, I think that's, that's a wonderful point to make uh, and emphasises the fact that busyness is not necessarily a hiding place. Uh, as I've said of most of the others on the list, it's only a hiding place if we use it in that way. But people who have been forced by circumstances, teachers are a classic example at the moment, uh, to be relentlessly, kind of helplessly busy uh, are clearly not intending to hide from themselves. They're, they have had this thrust upon them and they're trying to deal with it. And I agree. I think that is a challenge then for all of us uh, to ask, how did, how did we let this happen to other people around us? In the same way as how did we let loneliness happen uh, to people around us? Uh, how, how are we a society in which so many people, in which 25% of the population say they feel lonely most of every week how did you know that's not that's not their problem that's yeah. our problem that's the problem of as you say it's a societal uh, problem and of course if you are trapped uh, in for example busyness involuntarily the real challenge is to find time to remember 
to go inside, you know, to replenish the resources of compassion. So when, when people say I'm just running on empty, you know, I'm at the end of my tether, that's really what they're saying. I've, I've, I've run out of compassion. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I really, uh, your book is really helpful. Uh, or the, the analysis in your book is really helpful because it all it invites us not only to look at the individual, but as Sue has said just then about the corporate nature. Mm-hmm. And so the, the very things that you're applying to the individual also need to be applied to the culture. So the, the culture builds ways of hiding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as a culture, we hide from ourselves and we even hide hide the nature of our culture from ourselves. Mm. You know, in, in Australia, one of the conversations that's only just starting to happen is, is, the, is the conversation around our history and the way we treated the, the First Nations when we arrived. Mm. And we have been hiding from ourselves. And so we've been doing a whole lot of... We've, we've got our own... Um, corporate hiding places like you know football um anzacs um we hide behind these things uh as a way that so that as australians we don't get to look at the question of so who are we yes yeah as a corporate um a corporate act as well as an individual act so you know and your hiding places when you look at them you know nostalgia i mean there was a real attempt which has been defeated by COVID, I suspect. But you know that idea that we'd have have uh, around the Australia trip of a Captain Cook lookalike to celebrate 250 years. You know that's that's sort of that grasping for the nation that we think was, yes. and that's just, that's just nostalgia hiding us, hiding or helping us to hide from who we are and who are we becoming. Um, because as with the individual, when the individual starts to go deep, they have to confront things about themselves that are disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, as a national culture, we you know, just we use nostalgia as a way of masking the, the, some of the things we have to come to terms with, and, and, and some of some of the the horror on which our story should be based, but the, the horror that's actually omitted from our narrative. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And, uh, you know, we can put two N words together to get a, something very dangerous for any society, nostalgia and nationalism. Yeah. And uh, we, are, we are somewhat in the grip of both of those. And it is, as you say, it is just a, on, a, on a larger scale, it's a way of hiding from the truth about who we really are. Our treatment of First Peoples being a classic example, but even currently, our treatment of asylum seekers mm. um, and refugees in general, whether in detention or even in the community. Uh, the, the, the sort of uh, Damoclean sword of the temporary protection visa, etc. Uh, there are lots of ways in which, as a society, we are hiding from the truth about how we treat people in need. Uh, and it's easy to hide, particularly if our leaders are encouraging us to hide. If they shut off communications and things and we don't actually hear the stories and we're able to put people away from us out of yes. public view and out of, out of, out of media inquiry. Yes, that's right. Keep them, keep them hidden. Never, never mention their names, uh, and kind of pretend it isn't a problem anymore. Uh, and of course, to some extent, it works. I mean, that, that's I guess the point Peter's making. You know, we, if we if we are encouraged to hide, uh, 
from a truth about ourselves which might be a bit painful to face, then of course we'll mm. accept the invitation. We sometimes have used the, the language on the podcast here of, uh, you know, waking up or staying asleep, which I guess is somewhat similar language to, you know, yes. to hiding or to, to exploring the truth. Is I have this memory of um, of when my mum well, in particular would wake me up to go to school when I was younger and uh, there were two curtains in my room and she'd come in at, you know, 6.30 in the morning and open the first curtain to get me out of bed and I would rotate the other way and roll over to where there was darkness, the other side of the room. 20 minutes later, she'd open that curtain and then there's nowhere to hide and I had to get up. And it feels to me a little bit like this pandemic this year similarly has been opening a few curtains on us and, you know, you can't hide in busyness this year. You can't hide in maybe the materialism you once could this year. You can't hide in even ambition, really, because who knows what careers are going to be ahead of you or or when anything's going to really change. Um, so, so some of the hiding places that culture has set up, you know, that's, I think, the point Sue was making, is that none of us individually go out and construct these hiding places because we want to escape the call of what it is to be a human. We are brought into a system where the hiding places are uh, built with flashing neon signs pointing us towards them collectively. Um, yes. But some of these yes. hiding places have have kind of crumbled a little bit this year. Do, do you think that, that that is, you know, at the moment and then ultimately mm. in the decade or so to come going to lead to people, inevitably more people than otherwise would have exploring this work and exploring this question? Yeah, I, I think history encourages us to uh, believe that, Dom. Uh, I mean, obviously the pandemic has been appalling. I mean, it's going to kill a million people around the world and many Australians will die from it and others will be seriously ill and families uh, will be going through periods of grief and mourning as a result of the impact of this. But more broadly, I think the impact is going to be positive because the impact of major crises and catastrophes generally is positive. I mean, we go back to the Brisbane floods, the most recent Brisbane floods brought out the best in most people, uh, produced wonderful stories of uh, not just bravery, but stories of compassion, kindness uh, towards total strangers. The bushfires did the same thing. Uh, when the generation that's now mostly dead, who were in their early to mid-adulthood during the Great Depression, when they look back on the Great Depression, they say that brought out the best in us. That really clarified our values. It was a terrible time. We wouldn't want to go through it again. Massive unemployment, uh, a lot of people doing it really tough, but we discovered the value of the neighbourhood. We knew we had to look out for each other. Uh, we discovered the value of thrift, um, all sorts of things that stayed with that generation through life. They they thought of themselves as the, as the generation formed by the Depression in a good way, even though no one would say the experience was a good experience. Now, I think we'll have a COVID generation emerging from this who will have been shaped by the massive unemployment, by the correction to the mad rush of materialism that happened because we couldn't do all the spending that we normally do in the normal way, a curtailing of travel, causing people to think, well, actually, do we really need to take all those trips, especially when we now realise international flying is a, 
is a sort of ecological vandalism as well as a very efficient way of carting bugs around the world. A, a lot of people are I think, using this, people who would not normally have been introspective, including younger people who would normally have been in that identity building phase, have had an opportunity to think a bit more deeply about what really does matter to us. What, when the chips are down, mm. what's really important? Now, I think those, this is one of those loveless, like one of Peter's magic moments in a way for the, for the culture. It is a bit of a magic moment to have roughly six months of pressing the pause button, and it might be a lot more than six months, uh, causing people, some people have got bored out of their minds, some people have become suicidal, some people have resorted to domestic violence. It's not all a pretty picture, but more generally, I think it's fair to say it's been a time of great introspection from which we will all be the beneficiaries. I don't think we'll go back to the situation where people will stay rather, rather sort of not smugly, but, but just kind of routinely, oh, we don't know our neighbours, you know, we, we, we have enough time keeping in touch, have enough trouble keeping in touch with our friends without worrying about the neighbours. I don't think you'll hear that again. We've discovered the importance of the neighbourhood, uh, rediscovered it. And I think that's a lesson that will stay with us. We've discovered on a large scale something that's been creeping up on us for years, which is we don't have enough work for all the people who would like to work. And as a society, we have not been very generous or compassionate about that. Now, with so many people pitchforked into unemployment, which might go on for a year or two, as a society, we're going to have to... The stigma attached to unemployment is gone. Mm, and yeah. I don't think it will come back in our lifetime, certainly not in my lifetime. Uh, so these, I think, are some... You know, we'll be better citizens. We'll be better neighbours. We'll be better friends uh, as a result of living through this experience. I, I think I want to just touch on something you said before, Hugh, when we were talking about realising our inner self is basically compassionate and loving, and we have those examples from the fires and from the floods in Brisbane, um, I, I actually think if we're going to seize this magic moment that we're describing here, I think we need to, to shut off our ears to some of the media messaging because we yes. continue to believe these lies that basically, you know, that you, you don't have to scratch a person too far and you'll find something nasty underneath. Mm. You know, I think we need to actually believe our own lived experience more because I'm sure almost all of us, if we tap into our lived experience, we may have one or two bad apples in there. But generally speaking, we will have recollections of strangers who've helped us, of times when we've left a handbag and someone's just rung us straight away and, and, and got it back to us, of times when people who have no reason to help us out have gone above and beyond. You know, those stories are everywhere. And yet you still hear this pervasive myth that we're basically nasty and that yes. you can't trust people. Um, yes. But in, in, in Australia, and I think we've sort of bought into this idea of, of some of these um, national characteristics of, of mateship and so on, but we have missed the real characteristic of people who are genuinely kind-hearted, hospitable and care for their neighbours. Mm. Um, I found this true again and again, and I think we need to actually start pushing back a lot harder against the media messaging that is happening when we are reclaiming this magic moment right now. Yes, thanks, Sue. I agree very strongly with that proposition. Um, I mean, it's in a way, it's, I suppose, the core theme of the book that we are, because our, our essential nature is compassionate, uh, therefore, we are at our core good, 
uh, and kind and all those things. And the and and we are not being true to ourselves when we. That, so, in other words, when humans are being truly human, they are acting well. When they're when they're hiding from their true humanity, they're acting badly. That's that's not us. It's not as though we are a bad lot, and we have to be carefully conditioned to behave well. It's the opposite. You know, we, 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 are, we are loving creatures. We belong to a social species. And every now and then, because of circumstances or, or, or an uncontrollable outbreak of egotism or whatever it might be, we behave badly. But behaving badly, that's the exception, absolutely. Mm. I mean, some people behave badly and selfishly at the beginning of the pandemic in response to a kind of blind panic. But very soon, our nobler more truly human impulses prevailed. And I agree with you, we, we have to be very resistant and encourage each other to be very resistant to this idea that, I mean, to, to two aspects of this, to, to this idea that humans are by nature bad and you have to work really hard to try and make them good. But also when they are good, we've got to resist this idea that that's because they're Australian. I hate this idea. <laughs> this is the Australian spirit. We're all behaving well because we're Australians. Canadians wouldn't do this. <laughs> Canadians wouldn't do this. Yeah. It's a terrible example of nationalism gone mad. Yes. I think um, when you look at those 20 hiding places that you do list and you do unpack them in more detail in the book, so heavily encourage um, people to track down a copy and, and see that it, it helps you have compassion for when those moments where people do act you know, poorly or, or do act selfishly, whatever it is, because instead of seeing it as, uh, you know, their true character revealing itself, you can then just see it as they're coming from a different hiding place. You can almost yes. see what yes. that they're hiding, just like you have and continue to do, just like we all are, because facing the reality of, of love and compassion and, and justice and what it is to be a human is overwhelming. And I know you, you do go on to write in the book that underlying all our reasons for hiding from ourselves is our reluctance to face this question. What will be required of me if I get to the core of who I am? To be habitually loving as a daily discipline can seem a daunting prospect. To adopt compassion as a way of life takes courage. To live according to the dictates of the purest essence of self is a challenge. No wonder we sometimes feel like hiding, especially when there are so many comfortable hiding places on offer. I think that's a it's a really lovely way of, of feeling compassion for you know, for the poor, because, you know, the people who act poorly or act in a way that we don't think is the right way to act, because you just see that they've found a comfortable hiding place in the exact same way we continue to do as well. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, if, if that doesn't provoke feelings of compassion and empathy, then nothing will. Mm. Um, uh, the same as people often say, look, I don't know if I want to look inside myself because I might find too much dark stuff. Uh, well, of course there's dark stuff because there's light, um, because the loving spirit is like the light within us. Yes, it does cast shadows. Yes, that's there. And, and, and when we, exactly as you've said, Don, when we see evidence in someone else that they are in a dark place, uh, we need to recalibrate that, reframe it and say, well, the loving spirit is still within them, but they're scared of the light. Um, Plato had, I won't be able to give you the exact quote, I've used it in the book, but Plato had a wonderful 
quote that was something like, we can understand children who are afraid of the dark. The real tragedy is when grown-ups, he said men, but let's say grown-ups, when grown-ups are afraid of the light. Mm. Yeah, that's a lovely, lovely um, way to, to sort of summarize it all, um, I suppose, in a way. And it is a, it's a deeply optimistic view of humanity. But as you said, Sue, it's not a naively, um, you know, it's not naive. It's not just hoping that that's the truth. But actually, when we, when we honestly look at our lived experience, that is the truth we continually come back to, that more people generally have probably been kind to us than directly cruel to us. And, um, you know, and, and similarly, when we look at people who have gone to the core of themselves, almost uniformly, they experience some encounter of love and connectedness. And a lot of the evil and pain of the world comes from those who are too afraid to go into the depth of themselves and act out of a, you know, a, a shallower level of being. So, you know, in a sense, I, I think that's just a point I want to make as we move towards wrapping up. Um, or a question I want to ask you, Hugh, is that th this isn't, to some who might say, this is just an optimistic or an idealistic view of what it is to be a human, an idealistic view of the human race. Um, you know, that, that sort of cynical approach that would say, yeah, but actually it's all motivated by self-interest and self-desire when you get to the core of it. What, what would your response to, to that um, approach be? Mm. Well, I think the evidence is overwhelmingly to the contrary. It's not motivated by self-interest. Uh, it's motivated by love. It's motivated by the light within. Uh, all the major religions of the world are devoted to this simple proposition. And Christianity, of course, uh, we might say chief among them, uh, that, that the compassion within, the capacity for love, is to be nurtured. What, what else is, uh, is organised religion about except to encourage that? And given that about 75, between 75 and 80% of the world's population identify with one of the world's major religions, that looks to me like a huge vote in favour of compassion. Even in Australia, where, where we talk about declining church membership and so on, still more than half the population identify as Christian and about two-thirds of the population identify with some religion. That looks to me, again, like a vote in favour of uh, the teachings, the values, the communities that will nurture our capacity for compassion. We want by nature to do well. We want to be good people, good parents, good partners, good neighbours, uh, good citizens. That's that's the overwhelming... I mean, even if I wasn't thinking about this philosophically, if I was just being a pragmatic social researcher, reflecting on 60 years of listening to Australians telling me their stories about various aspects of their lives, what's the overwhelming impression that I come away with when I reflect on all those conversations? The overwhelming impression is people want to do well. Mm. People are not intent on being destructive. They don't want to be bad neighbours or bad parents or any of that. They want to do well. Yeah. And I suppose even when you look at those who maybe don't identify as religious, many of them will add in when you, when they say that, oh, look, I like a lot of what Jesus spoke about. I just don't see that that's lived out in the life of the church. So it's not a rejection of the ideals of love and justice and compassion. Often a rejection of religion is a fierce stance alongside those and a feeling that religion isn't living them. So yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting point to, to look at it that way and to, to see humanity in that way.
Can I butt in there, Don? Because um, this morning, I, I think it was lovely that we're having this conversation today because the lecture we gave us a bit of a gift this morning along these lines. That it, uh, for those of us that were in church, they were um, we have Jesus saying, who, who do they say the Son of Man is? So he's using for a start is that title, the Son of Man, who was, who was the human one? You know, and when we're talking here about saying that the essence of being, when we talk about the essence of, of just loving is actually being our most human we could be. Um, Jesus uses that title. He doesn't go for kingship titles. He goes for the human one. And of course, then he asks, who do you say that I am? So it was a lovely opportunity to unpack, having just been reading your book, you, <laughs> a lot of questions about finding and being um, not hiding from our inner self, because the inner self is the most human we can be is also what Jesus was witnessing to in in, in that title and in everything he, he did and said. Mm. Mm. Yes, thank you. For that. And um, and just one final question, then to wrap up, Hugh. If um, you know, if I was to ask you about your own personal journey and the ways in which you found the tools necessary to begin that 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 journey inwards rather than into one of the hiding places, uh, because it is it is hard. It can be daunting, and it can also be, you know, sometimes uh, very difficult to discern what is a call into our truest self and what is actually just another hiding place that was disguised. What were the tools, the the approach? How did you go about that journey yourself? I find that almost impossible to answer, Don, uh, because there's probably so many factors involved. Um, but I think it's uh, the, 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 the trigger, given that I have a long I mean, a childhood, adolescence, young adulthood steeped in Christianity. So I had a kind of a cultural framework, if not at that early stage a religious or spiritual framework, but at least a cultural framework for thinking uh, of the world in this way. But I think the specific trigger um, has been a, a, a very vivid, specific awareness of the needs of neighbours. Uh, neighbours in the broader sense, neighbours, friends, uh, people that I encounter. So many people are uh, uh, becoming terminally ill. This was in my, in my, when I was in my 50s and early 60s, uh, or, or dealing with crippling illnesses that were going to be with them, really being in trouble uh, and needing help and support. I think that, and, and, and realising how much help and support is forthcoming when someone's need is obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when I think I really started to get, in a very personal way, uh, the idea that that's that's why we're here. Yeah. Well, Hugh, it's been a it's been a treat to spend an hour talking with you. Thank you so much for making time to join the podcast. Great pleasure. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you, Peter and Sue. Thank you. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.